Adam Crowley. Come with me, and you'll see. It's a world filled with all the meat that you want. The Adam Crowley Show on ESPN Pittsburgh. Center, and Kessel has it up to Malkin. Into the cap zone. Goes to Kessel. Shooting scoring! Right up high! By Holby and the Penguins get another one! And Bucks to Tommy Phil is doing his magical thing here tonight. The Penguins lead 6-4. to four. Phil Kessel. Here's some more Penguins talk with Brian Metzer coming up. Just heard from Josh Yoey of The Athletic. And a couple new quotes from Josh, from Jonathan Bambouli, who you will hear from in the 6 o'clock hour. Uh, as we were planning a huge mega blowout hockey show today with the prospect of Kessel being traded or Broussard being traded or Rust and Sheary being traded or Sheary and Haglin being traded or uh, Tristan Jari being... Who knew what was going to go? And, and nothing happened. Nothing happened at the, at the draft. Nothing. The Penguins just made their picks and moved on. It's like, who is this guy? Who is this guy dressed as Jim Rutherford who does nothing at a moment like this? But there was very little activity overall, actually, in the National Hockey League. And uh, Rutherford still says, quote, I'm going to try to make a deal to free up cap space, but I might not use it on July 1. Uh, this is from, and again, Josh and Jonathan and Jason Mackey. They all have these these quotes here. In other words, he might try to make a trade this summer instead of throwing money at a free agent. Um, Rutherford talked to these guys about the notion of Chris Letang getting his minutes down. I think that would suggest to me that they're looking at a defenseman there to help make that possible. Uh, He also talked about the notion that Tavares could come here. He said, quote, I'm creative, but I'm not a magician. Yeah, I don't see how that would work out cap-wise. And then there's this. Uh, Rutherford on whether or not he plans on keeping Phil Kessel around. You just heard Mike Lang with the Phil Kessel play-by-play call. Quote, yeah, did I ever say I wasn't? Well, no, but you never definitively said that you were either. So that's where part of the rub came in. And I think it became clear that Kessel wasn't going to get traded early last week. When... The Arizona story came out, and Max Domi got dealt to Montreal, a player that the Penguins seemed to like more than other teams, except for maybe the Canadians. But they seem to be more sold on Domi. I mean, I feel like I've been hearing Domi was going to get traded to the Penguins from the moment he got drafted, uh, just because of the Ty Domi connection with Mario and all that. But when Arizona apparently talked to the Penguins when the Penguins called them but then said thanks but no thanks we want to sit at the floor salary cap wise and when the Kings emerged as a potential trade candidate for Kessel on June the 4th that's the first time I saw the Bob McKenzie story so I guess the night of June the 3rd actually you know Mark Madden and a couple other people had stories uh, the Thursday before Memorial Day, May the 25th. I went back and looked it up. That's when the Kessel rumors started. And when it sat out there and sat out there and sat out there, and then he got to the week before the draft, and still nothing happened with the Kings, and the Coyotes traded Domi, 
And I think it was Jason Mackey for the Post-Gazette had the story that they were planning to stay at the floor. It just sort of felt like at that point, nothing was going to happen. And I got the impression that then Phil Kessel was going to be a Pittsburgh Penguin, not only through the draft, but also through the summer. And I'm as convinced as ever that Kessel is going to be a Penguin come training camp. Now, the Phil Defense Foundation that exists out there, the Kessel fanatics that care more about Kessel than I think the logo, that partially feel like they deserve credit for Kessel's turnaround because they've turned him from a persnickety, grumpy player in Toronto and Boston into a lovable cartoon character here in Pittsburgh with funny memes and gifts and so forth, and videos, they feel like because they've made the situation so comfortable for Phil here that by extension they should probably all get Stanley Cup rings too. Like, I mean, there's this mentality amongst Penguin fans when it comes to Kessel like that. I've never seen it with another player before. Like, we are directly responsible for his success because we made it easy on him. Now, no one says that, but that's what it is. Let's be that that's where that comes from. And I've been lumped in, you know, as Josh Yoey alluded to in that interview and a couple other media members who had the audacity, the the wherewithal, the gall to suggest that maybe the Penguins were trading Phil Kessel, that it could be discussed, that other teams were calling, that general manager Jim Rutherford might consider it. I said, yeah, that was a potential. That could happen. I don't think it will. I don't think it should. I never endorsed a Kessel trade. I never wanted him to trade him. I wanted him to be traded only in the sense that I'm so sick of them I just don't want to deal with them anymore. Like, from my own personal satisfaction point of view, yeah, because I don't want to deal with you people anymore. But from a hockey point of view, I kind of like watching him play. I kind of like 92 points. I kind of like him on the power play. I kind of like his wrist shot, his skating ability, his passing ability. From a hockey standpoint, I did not want to see Phil Kessel traded, and I didn't think they'd ever get to the point where they could get the return to make it happen. Unless they're so sold on Daniel Sprung, they felt the need that they had to move him because they can't have two of those players on the roster at the same time. But I'm not stunned that Kessel's still here. I don't feel like I'm proven wrong, like Yoey was referring to in his interview with us in the DV Morning Show, because I never really anticipated a trade would be able to be pulled off unless they got their socks blown off, and they weren't. So pretty much everything I thought would happen turned out to be so. And Kessel is still a Penguin and will be. Now that gets to Mike Sullivan's reaction, which was at times it felt abrasive or challenging or defiant, however you want to tag that, especially if you saw the interaction with Jason Mackey in the Post-Gazette article. And I thought that Mark Madden in our podcast today, I might play this clip a little bit later on in the uh, 6 o'clock hour, it's Mark's belief, and he's not alone on this, I know, that Sullivan spoke with Jason first because Jason allegedly wrote less about the prospect of Kessel being traded, and that angered some people over at the Penguins, and that's why Jason got Coach Sullivan first. I know that's a belief out there amongst some that cover the team, and Mark discussed it directly on our podcast. So I heard that, and I thought, okay, well, if that's true, that's kind of weird because wasn't it Jason that broke the story about the Coyotes' angle? I think Jason had that first, didn't he? Am I wrong on that? Maybe I'm wrong on that, but I, I thought it was. Do I have that right, Tom? I think you're right because I think he came or was on that our the show. Athletic. I think I think Mackie broke that. Okay. Well, either way, that just sounds controlling to me. If the Penguins really did do that, 
If that was really the case, then that sounds over the top. And, uh, hey, look, they want to quell a story, a, a, anything that has a whiff of negativity the Penguins don't like out there. So now, now that we know that Phil Kessel is going to be a Penguin in September, it's repair mode time. But you don't have to repair anything if you make it look like the whole thing was made up and you do the Trump fake news approach. And that's, in essence, what the Penguins are doing here. But the, the personality conflict? What, what are you talking about? There's no disagreement. We've gotten along fine. Where are you hearing that? Where are you hearing? Like, that's what Sullivan said to Mackey. Where are you guys getting that? That he wants to be on Gino's line. Like, oh, where, where, did that come from me? Where'd that come from? I, I, yeah, I guess everybody made it up. Everybody made it up. That's why nobody was on the same page when it came to his injury. It's all made up. In fact, here, here's Sullivan. Uh, this is from the Penn's website at the draft. Take a listen. Phil had a great season for us. You know, he had one of the best seasons of his career. He, uh, he was one of our better players for a lot of the season. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, he, he, he's a guy that, that helped contribute and put our team in the position to compete for the Stanley Cup. Um, you know, it, it's hard to, to, to explain in, in a short circumstance um, how certain players perform and, and, and don't perform. And, uh, but the reality is I, I know Phil's heart was in the right place and his, his effort is in the right place. Every, every guy on our team is trying to help us win. And the reality is, is uh, you know, our relationship is, is, is as good as it's ever been. You know, I think there's a mutual respect there. I think, you know, have we had our differences uh, at times during the course of, of each season that we've been together? Of course we have. But that's the player-coach player relationship that goes on on every team. And as I say to Phil and all of our players, my commitment to them is to find common ground to help put them all in positions to be successful. I know... Uh, and I can assure you guys that both Phil and myself have the same motivation in mind, and that's trying to help the Pittsburgh Penguins win and be successful. Well, my, my relationship with Phil has been the same uh, for three seasons now, and uh, it hasn't changed. It's evolved because we've, we've uh, been through different experiences, both as a group and as individuals, and, but, but my relationship with Phil is the same as it's always been. It's one of respect, of mutual respect, and... Uh, and, and that's, that's how I see it. And, you know, I, I like Phil a lot as a person and a hockey player. He's been a big part of uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins' success over the last uh, three seasons. He's coming off a 92-point season, put us in a great position to, uh, to compete again for a Stanley Cup. He was a huge part of the two Stanley Cups that we won. And myself and our coaching staff has nothing but respect for, for the type of player and the person that he is. Okay, and, and again... Sullivan is a very smart guy, particularly in how he deals with us and the words that he chooses, which is why we all thought there was such an obvious differentiation between what he said and what Rutherford said, because Sullivan never chooses a word unintentionally. So he could have directly been on the same page as Rutherford as he wanted to when it came to Phil's injury, and he wasn't because he wanted to say what he did. And when you hear there, same as it has ever been, and mutual respect, and that's the coach-player interaction, none of that is, we have a great relationship. Okay, and he says he liked him, and he appreciates him as a player, and he appreciates him as a guy, but, you know, the coach-player interaction thing that he says there, as I alluded to earlier, 
and I know Mark has said this on quite a few occasions, he'll say it again when we play that clip coming up at 6.30, just because that coach-player interaction works well between Sidney Crosby and Mike Sullivan, or Carl Hagelin and Mike Sullivan, or Matt Murray and Marc-Andre Fleury and Mike Sullivan, doesn't mean that interaction is taken the same way by Phil Kessel. Like, I think a lot of people are laying this at the feet of Sullivan like it's his fault if there's a rub, and I'm not saying that. You know, Kessel is the quirky part in this equation. Kessel is the variable. Because we're not hearing this from a lot of other players. Maybe we did with Cole. You know, that's one guy that comes to mind. But I hear phrases like, same as it has ever been. That doesn't necessarily mean great. Mutual respect. That doesn't necessarily mean like. And maybe they're at the point now where same as it ever has ever been is tiresome after three years when it was tolerable after Mike took over in the middle of the first season or even after two cups. Or maybe same as it has ever been is no longer as easy to deal with after you have gotten knocked out short of a cup. And that's the, again, variable to this part of the equation. They've never had to do this before. You know, any rub that anybody ever has with Sullivan has always been masked by success. It's all been for the greater good. And everything that he's touched has turned to gold, and everything that Kessel has touched has turned to gold here until the end of the regular season and the playoffs where things started to fall apart for Kessel and eventually the team. So I think it's a relationship that's easily repaired. And if it doesn't need to be repaired, at least it can get back to the same spot that it was when they handled it fine to the point that they got two Stanley Cups, but winning needs to cure that. At this point, though, I don't see how Sullivan can say this as defiantly, as adamantly, as demonstrably as he did, not only in those comments, but also to the Post-Gazette, He's not going to say that if there's any chance that Kessel is now going to be traded. And, and I can't get beyond the timeline here. You know, like I've talked about, the Penguins, if, if there's any truth to what Mark had inferenced there, and other people seem to believe that Sullivan was given to the Post-Gazette first because it was their opinion that Sullivan was more comfortable doing the interview since there was less speculation on the Post-Gazette's part over Kessel being traded or their relationship or what have you, that if they were that cognizant, then they would have tried to put out this fire earlier by spoon-feeding Sullivan to anyone else who hadn't advanced that story yet, when there were more people who hadn't advanced it. Like when Mark put that out there on May 25th, there were plenty of other people who hadn't. They could have put Sullivan on a conference call with three or four other people besides Mark and had the quotes just refute everything that Mark said. Or after Bob McKenzie said, yeah, the Kings are interested, they could have done the same thing on June the 5th, but they didn't. You know why? Because it almost maybe happened? Because perhaps they were wondering if somebody would knock their socks off? Because they were perhaps considering that a trade could take place? Yeah, I think that's likely. Now... Boy, is it a coincidence, huh? Get to draft night, no trade is going to happen. Like uh, Rutherford said today, we weren't even close. So the middle of the first night of the draft, Sullivan says, problem? What problem? We've, we've gotten along forever. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Yeah, because you couldn't come up with a trade. 
You waited, you waited, you waited. Nothing good comes along. Okay, guys, you're going to have to kiss and make up and make it work. Here's how we do that. I don't know what these media guys are making up. Fake news. Fake news. Let's Huckabee Sanders this whole thing. 412-922-2874. That's the number to call. 412-922-2874. Or tweet us at Tim Benz PGH. Uh, when we come back, Brian Metzger is going to talk some more Penguins with us, get some Steeler talk next. That's just around the corner. A real issue facing the NFL, and it's got nothing to do with the players the owners or the flag or the president. That's next. Tim in for Adam. Should have brought this up before, Tom, um, when we were talking about Phil Kessel because there's the natural segue to hot dogs, so I blew this, but... Um, Tim in for Adam today. In case you missed it, there's this minor league baseball team in Erie, the Seawolves, right? You ever been to an Erie Seawolves game? I have not, chance? no. I've heard of them, though. It's better than I have. So good job out of you. Uh, the Erie Seawolves had Sugar Rush Night, which I guess would be an interesting way for the Pirates to try to drum up enthusiasm <laughs> during the next Sean Rodriguez at bat. Just get everybody high on sugar and let them go. But Sugar Rush Night included, like, lots of sugary treats that you could buy special at the concession stand that night. Like, I think one of them was, like, cotton candy snowballs. Like, you know, the snowballs that you get in the vending machine? Yeah. I'm not a big fan of the snowball. Yeah, they're not. It's one of those where you eat it, and then the coconut just gets stuck in your throat I'm for 13 hours. Guy. That's the problem with me. I'd eat the cotton candy one, though. Did you see the cotton candy hot dog? I did happen to see that. That Do you think that looks good or gross? Well, that's what I want to get to here. Okay. All right? And maybe when Brian comes, we can throw this If he ever comes, yeah. who knows what that Is he guy. just not coming back or so not? He always pulls that, yeah, I'll be right back, and then we don't see him for like a week. So Today's excuse was he's got to walk his dog. Does he have a dog? He does have a dog. Is that a, do we know that the dog exists? The dog exists. If it needs walked or not, that's up in the air. Like I think I know somebody who said that they had to take care of their grandma for a year and a half after the grandma died just as an excuse to get oh, out of work. that's terrible. Yeah, I know. It's like, how, how could you do that? Yeah. It makes me wonder if they took care of the grandma in the first place, but until I realized, like, I didn't I go to the funeral or see an obituary or something like that? I think it was an intern that was here for a little too long or something to that effect. I don't quite remember how it went down, but maybe there's no dog. Maybe the dog has been given back to the kennel, or maybe the dog had to be put down. Maybe I know, I know, his mom was watching the dog while he was on vacation, so maybe the the dog is still in Baltimore. <laughs> yes, exactly. There you go. That, that's a possibility. That's a distinct possibility. Yes. So he's just slacking off, right? Because Crowley's not here. He knows I can ramble on my own as, as long as I want. He's not normally the part of the show that he is when I'm here. So just take a little extra time, right? Yeah. Put your feet up. Comes back from vacation, goes on staycation. So there's this hot dog that's made at the Erie Seawolf Stadium. They're what, the double A team for the Tigers or One, something like yeah, that? Yeah, something like that. And uh, it's just a regular ballpark, Frank, but instead of a um, bun, like a regular hot dog bread bun. It's a cotton candy bun. And instead of putting anything else like onions on top of it or relish or anything like that, they put nerds candy on top of it. So it's the sugar rush hot dog. So again, no bun, cotton candy, tightly wound for the bun, and then nerds candy on top. That sounds repulsive. Terrible, yeah. I, I couldn't get through two bites of it in my head. At least that's what my head is telling me. So I'm saying this to Val during the commercial break today when I was doing DVE this morning. And she goes, I bet you it would surprise you and taste better than what you think because savory and sweet tastes good together. 
And I just I can't I can't even picture eating it. Like, how could you eat it with the hot, the cotton candy? Is this sort of like the chicken tender gordita that they have at Taco Bell, where that's one big giant folded chicken tender, and that's the outside instead of the corn tortilla? Is this the same concept? Like it's one big thing of cotton candy that just kind of wraps around. Yeah, how it. does it get that thick that you can actually use it to eat the hot dog and manipulate the hot dog? I don't know because when you eat cotton candy, it has a tendency to just dissolve in your mouth. In dissolve the first in your place, mouth anyway. or dissolve in your hand, yeah. right? This strikes know. me as almost impossible to even ingest in the first place. Like, how do you get it into your mouth to figure out if it tastes good or not? So anyway, um, we have this conversation and it just it, it rattled through my head. Okay, what are other foods or drinks that I have tried? that just appeared to be incredibly disgusting, that once I tried them, I was stunned at how good they are. And I came up with two. Here are the two that I have. And one of them is kind of similar, actually, to the Sugar Rush hot dog. Have you ever been to Social House on 7th Avenue downtown? No. Right right before the 7th Street Bridge. It's right on the corner of Fort Duquesne. It's what uh, Bossa Nova used to be. You know what I'm talking about? I have an idea, yeah. All right. Um, right across the parking garage. They do a lot of, like, Pan-Asian food, right? And they've got this sushi roll that's called Pop Rock Sushi. It's basically just a, a real basic crab roll dipped in Pop Rocks. You know, old-fashioned, 19... You know what Pop Rocks are, Oh, right? yeah, of course. They're like nerds that explode in your exactly, mouth. Exactly, yeah. It's fantastic. It tastes good. I, I, I can't eat it fast enough when the I'm there. The popping sensation, does it, is it just something that you've never experienced before and that's what makes it so good? Or I've never had a popping sensation in my mouth except for Pop Rocks. No, I have not. If that's what you're inferring, the answer is no. Asking, yes. yeah. So and even if you put like the ginger and the soy sauce and the wasabi, like a regular piece of sushi, somehow it still tastes great. And I, other people are scared to death to even try it. Like, some people aren't adventurous for just regular sushi. Then when you put Pop Rocks on it, I, I think it's great. All right, so that was that was one. The other one is jalapeno-flavored beer. Have you tried jalapeno-flavored beers? No, but I've had spicy kind of beer before. What kind of spicy? Spicy like... Not jalapeno spicy. Like cinnamon spicy? Yeah, like something in that family. No, I'm Nothing talking, where, like, I'm talking a, about like jalapeno hot beer. I've never had that, but... That doesn't sound that bad. That's not as much of a stretch as a hot dog wrapped in cotton candy. Have you ever had, uh, what's that called? Uh, the mole chocolate sauce um, that you have in a taco? Like a, a, a spicy like a spicy chocolate sauce? No. Weyerbacher does that with a beer. That's really good. And uh, there's this place called Night Watch when I used to live in New England that had great jalapeno beer. So those are the two things that just stun me. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to like this. I love it. So I did a little walking tour downstairs while we had this debate going on, Val and I. And I came across a couple others. All right. Uh, I asked Tall Kathy, and she said crickets. And she actually ate crickets, and she liked them. That, there's like this, uh, I don't know, she, she said that they're in Mexico, and she ate a cricket, and you're supposed to chase it with a tequila shot. And she said that she, she had one and didn't think it was terrible, and they were like seasoned. Uh, a seasoned tortilla chip, and people were just popping them. She says, you know what? Scott's got some on his desk. Scott's row from 96.1. Turn, turn up, I turn around, I look on his desk. There are bacon bacon and cheese-flavored crickets sitting on his desk. And they're actually, like, it looks like a dead insect. Not, like, fried so you can't figure out what it is. No, an actual package of crickets. So that one, that one took the cake. Um, I asked Madden, I said, well, do you have any foods like that? He goes, I'll go the other direction. Madden said that he hated chocolate covered bacon. And immediately after I said that McLaughlin said that the one that's 
stood out to him was bacon jam. Have you ever tried bacon jam yeah. made with goat cheese? It's that like bacon, bourbon, and brews down in uh, Washington. They do that stuff. And that one to me, like it's like a chutney almost, like a spread. And I'd be a little fearful of that, but every response came back with bacon. It's like bacon-flavored crickets. I didn't realize bacon was so polarizing. Bacon usually brings everybody together. Uh, Sean McDowell said rattlesnake. I've had rattlesnake before. It's like all those Cajun foods. Like, oh, you tried alligator. Oh, you know, they all taste the same. You tried wombat. Everything tastes like chicken. Like, that's the legitimate, really, everything tastes like chicken sort of thing. Do you have one? Do you have, yeah, you, I got one. Would you care to throw one into the mix? Yeah, uh, I was always, I love it now, but I was very tentative to try guacamole at first. Because when you when you see guacamole, like to dip a chip into it, it, it just looks gross. It's just a green ball of just mush. Yeah, but that's not weird. That just it, makes, does, it looks weird, though. That just makes you weird. That makes you personally weird for being scared of guacamole. I'm, well, then I'm personally weird because I was scared of guacamole for that, about 15 that, that's years. The, that's not exotic at all. That doesn't seem odd at all. Like it's from co- Mexico. What? That's exotic. You can grow avocados <laughs> in the States. What are you, Trump? <laughs> keep keep the avocados on the other Get side of the border here. wall? You're going to separate the big avocados from the little avocados and keep the little avocados in a cage? That's not how it works. You just like you're just spooked by guacamole, just by the look of it. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, okay, that's more like I have. Uh, I'm disrupted by the very thought of ingesting a beet. Like, I'm okay. talking about having beets, and I'm getting a glottal stop. Like, it just it, it's something I can't handle. The very thought of a beet or sambuca. If I'm going to go the beverage route, I okay. can't touch sambuca because it smells like licorice. Don't like it, licorice. The, that's the liquor that tastes like black licorice. Yes, can't stand that. Awful. Stuff. It's but that's terrible. just like I don't like that. But that's not exotic or scary. Okay. Or, like a cotton candy wrapped hot dog is completely from a different planet. Yes. Did you see? There was another ball club I think that was doing fried tarantula burgers, or I think it was a, a barbecue in Carolina. It okay, was, like they that were would putting be one, a, and it literally looked like a tarantula just encased in like kind of like the, uh, the the KFC rat that got into the. It, it, but this is on purpose, though. <laughs> like they really want the tarantula there. All right. Well, I just when, when Val said it's probably going to taste better than you think. I, I, I couldn't go with that answer until I, until I found out Tall Kathy likes crickets. And now the whole Pandora's box has been opened. 412-922-2874. Um, one quick football note. We've got a couple minutes here before we get to Brian Metzer. Uh, I, I noticed this when I saw that Gene Steratore had retired, the guy from Washington County, the official, right? And officials are jumping ship on the National Football League. Like, refs are giving up on the NFL faster than Pittsburgh baseball fans are giving up on the Pirates. I mean, they are gone. Um, If you count his retirement, that is now four referees, not just officials, four referees that have left the game. And I think that's now nine or ten overall when it comes to officials that have left the game since the end of the regular season, or since the Super Bowl anyway, because Steratore just did the Super Bowl, I think McCauley did two Super Bowls ago or three Super Bowls. Whenever the um, Broncos and Seahawks game was, he did that Super Bowl. But between him and Hockey Lee and Jeff Triplett, that's six Super Bowls of experience, and they all have 15 to 28 years of experience there, and they're all leaving. And that leads to a couple questions. Does the NFL have a referee problem? What does the league do about it, and who is to blame? And as far as the first question goes, it's, yes, there is a problem. If those are the good ones, then how bad are the bad ones? How bad are the lesser ones? 
I mean, we got a taste of that during the replacement debacle of 2012 with the whole fail Mary and every other blown call in those first couple weeks. Remember, the old refs came back to a standing ovation. It was the ultimate case of don't know what you got till it's gone. The last question appears easy. Who are you going to blame? Well, if you're going to blame somebody, maybe they should blame their own TV partners. Because Sterator is going to CBS. Triplet is going to ESPN. McCauley's going to NBC. They're all going to be rules analysts at those networks. So, you know, all things being equal, like if you gave me the exact same amount of pay to be a rules analyst, or maybe even a little less, and sit in a studio in New York once a week, as opposed to the stress, the strain, the travel, the officiating of a game in sub-20 below zero weather in Chicago for Bears-Vikings in the middle of December, uh, yeah, I'm going to take the studio job for just as much, if not less. So potentially that allure of just watching games instead of officiating them, let alone not taking the abuse, like having John Gruden snarl in your face, having you know, Cowher's jaw jut at you or Belichick grab you, you know, any of that so you don't have to deal with that crap. Dealing with T.O. yapping in your ear. Yeah, sure, I'm going to take the studio job. Absolutely. In fact, another guy, Cleet Blakeman, was going to take the job if Triplet didn't. So he was ready to go. Now, I would caution those refs, though, about one thing. NFL fans have gotten hip to the notion that a lot of the consternation about rules is less about who's interpreting them on game day and more about who's writing them who's enforcing them with fines, and who's presenting them for explanation with those little videos on Monday morning. All of a sudden now, that's why Al Riveron and Dean Blandino have become the faces of officiating evil over recent years, more so than those guys between the white lines. That's why Ed Hockley has gone from everybody's favorite ref that you love to hate to, well, he's just a lovable old codger because... We're mad at the guys who are trying to explain away the dumb rule that's written on paper as opposed to how Ed is interpreting it. And as far as what the league does, I I guess it's pay more, which they seem to be loath to do when it comes to the officials. That's the only thing I can think of. Pay more and be less stringent in downgrading guys based on hairline overturn calls via like a nanosecond of replay or some sort of cumbersome rules interpretation. Then again, the league doesn't want to appease officials in the name of getting a call wrong. Now, the end result is we're not going to have our favorite refs to kick around anymore. But my guess is we're going to want to kick the new guys even harder. 412-922-2874. Brian Metzer next from the Pittsburgh Penguins Radio Network to talk about the Pens and their inactivity at the draft. Tim in for Adam here. Check me out, Breakfast the Benz, Monday through Friday at Trib Sports. Joining me right now to talk about the Penguins from the Pittsburgh Penguin Radio Network. You can hear him here during the season. It's Brian Metzer during game broadcasts. Metzer down to the draft, right? Oh, yes, I was. And it was awfully hot, Tim. Let me tell you that. Hot outside, not inside. Rather cool by Jim Rutherford standards, no? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It was a pretty slow weekend for everybody, aside from the big trade made with Calgary and uh, and, uh, Carolina. But other than that, there wasn't a whole lot happening in terms of just straight draft picks. 
Before we dive too heavy into the draft and some of the news that's come out today, Mets, about the Penguins, let's get to the the most important story of the day surrounding the Pens, and that's this photo of Maria Sharapova and Sidney Crosby. Um, Have you seen it yet? I have, and that is, uh, if you're going to look for Russian collusion, I guess that's the kind you're looking for. No, no, well, yes, it would be. Uh, I would be more than happy to collude with Maria Sharapova. That would be fine. Uh, But... What I appreciate about this photo, and I think you're going to know where I'm going with this, of a man of similar stature as I am, that Maria did whatever she could to make Sid look as tall as possible. (laughs) Did you notice that in the photo, how she did the I'm the tall girl lean in thing to make the guy next to me appear to be about two or three inches taller? I thought that was a really nice gesture on her part. That was a quality move, and you're right. I did notice she leaned in a little bit so she wasn't towering over him and Hey, you know, when Sid is a champion to guys who aren't six foot tall everywhere, because for what he's been able, been able to accomplish as a guy who's sub six foot tall, it gives us all hope, Tim, because boy, what a player Sidney Crosby is, and he doesn't need that size because his stature is huge. He is a giant among short guys. Well, not so much if you look at the comments underneath the photo, where the very first comment from one of Sharapova's fans was, Who's that? Well, boy, it just goes to show you how close-minded fans of one sport can be as opposed to another, because I'd like to think that Sidney Crosby at this point at this point, is pretty worldwide known, but maybe not in, in tennis circles and overseas. Well, that's what Tom and I were saying. Like, How many times in his life do you think Sidney Crosby has been the second most famous person in a photo? Probably never since he was, what, 13 years old or whatever, because that would have been one of the last times somebody would have been like, hey, who's this kid? Because since then, he's been on the world's map, that's for sure. Like, so may- I think it's been quite the time. Maybe when he took that photo with Roethlisberger his rookie year. Like, that's probably the last time that's happened, don't you think? Well, but he had already won, too. They were like dual champions. So I'm not even sure that he wouldn't have been on the map. No, no, no. I'm talking been- about his rookie year. Like, his first oh, year in I Pittsburgh. Got I got you. When he was rookie of the year, they brought him over to the south side. I think it was during OTAs or something like that, after he had won rookie of the year. That's probably the last time he was in a photo with somebody more famous than him you're probably right about that because i'm trying to he's taking pictures with so many people and random celebrities and i can't think of one that would have left somebody saying hey who's that person in the picture with you know ben affleck or something i mean it's always Sidney crosby's pretty well known at this point so you're right i I would have to give you that one because like if you took that photo and showed it to somebody in calgary no one's going to say hey who's the hot blonde with sid it's going to be hey look sid took a photo with maria sharapova i would hope it would be more of a two-way street once you go across to Europe, no? Yeah, I think um, both of them would be pretty well-known at this point. And to be honest, just because I haven't, I feel like I haven't seen her in a while, when I first looked at the picture, I was like, what's this? And uh, What are they talking about? And I'm like, oh, wait, that's Maria Sharapova. So I gave her the Sidney Crosby treatment. I was wondering who Sid was in the picture with today. I, I think she's doing fine in her veteran years, Mets. I don't know <laughs> if it's Jennifer Aniston in the last season of Friends, but it's pretty strong. Uh, Brian Metzer. It wasn't even that. I just didn't know. I just didn't, I couldn't put my finger on it. Brian Metzer from the Pittsburgh Penguins Radio Network joining me here. Metz, as far as what Jim Rutherford said today and the news that's come out today, if people missed it, a couple qualifying offers not extended to Tom Kunakel and Riley Sheehan. What do you make of that? Uh, the Sheehan is definitely a little bit of an eyebrow raiser because that's a player I thought that they would be able to sign pretty easily, and they probably still will. And uh, if you look at his quote, because I just was able to see it before we went live here, Tim, 
he pretty much alluded to the fact that he was not going to qualify a couple of these guys specifically to avoid giving them arbitration rights. And that tells me that he might be able to negotiate something with Riley Shea and it's going to work well for both sides. I think Riley Shea feels like he got his career revitalized in Pittsburgh. Now, uh, when you look at Tom Kunockel, they'll probably let him hit the open market, maybe circle back sometime down the road. But that's a guy that seemingly has not always been in the uh, the best favor of Mike Sullivan, and maybe they're going to be content to let him go in favor of some other players, specifically Teddy Bluger's name comes to mind as somebody that might be able to take that roster spot. Yeah, the Teddy Bluger train got going today, that's for sure. Dangle that quote out there, and then sure enough, Shane doesn't get a qualifying offer, and uh, maybe either Shane comes back for a bigger ticket and they know something's in the works for Broussard. They trade Broussard. Shane's your third guy. Bluger's your fourth guy. I can see that happening. I don't think it's coincidence that these two things happened arm-in-arm Mets. Either they don't think they're going to keep Shane uh, and Bluger can do just as good of a job, so he steps right in, or like I said, there's a domino to fall with Broussard. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you there because if you're trying to make a deal and you're Jim Rutherford right now, Derek Broussard's name has got to come up because he's an attractive asset, first of all. He's even more so with the salary that has to go with him because of the money that was retained by Vegas in that crazy deal that Jim Rutherford made. So if he's looking to make a splash, that's not going to be shocking whatsoever if that player moves and you slot them in just the way you talked about because they'll have a little bit of money then to make a decent deal with Riley Shane. And then it sounds like they are pretty impressed with what they've seen out of Teddy Bluger. They'd like to give him an opportunity to maybe move into Pittsburgh and play. And you saw the deal they signed with Dominic Simone earlier today, and I thought that was another interesting Jim Rutherford quote talking about his uh, short his shift times, you know. Again, Brian Metzer from the Pittsburgh Penguins Radio Network. Yeah, shift times and Chris Letang, something that has been discussed quite a bit Mets not only this past season but in years before and I think uh, Rutherford was right it's like in recent years we've talked about how the longer Latang plays the better he plays and this year was the more they kept him off his feet the better he played and that infers to me that they've got a priority in their minds not just to get a defenseman but a defenseman that could eat up minutes beyond even what Justin Schultz can take away from Latang. yeah there's no doubt about that Tim I think they've got to find a way to limit his ice time just because he's not getting any younger. I felt like one of the big things with Chris Letang last year is that he relied on athleticism so much, and that's not to say he's still not a finely tuned athlete, but he's gotten older, he maybe lost half a step, and it's harder to make up for situations when you get a little more tired whenever you're just not as quick as you once were to get back defensively. Combine that with the fact that that Letang himself said that he it was harder than he ever dreamed to come back from his injury. I think the longer offseason, the fact that he could train, be healthy the full time, and then have his minutes managed a little bit more next year is going to help the Penguins. But definitely I do think that another defenseman is in the offing for them, that they will be looking to bring in somebody that could play potentially anywhere from four to six in their lineup just to alleviate minutes across the board for all those guys. Mets, when you see the quotes that came out from uh, Mike Sullivan about the relationship that he has with Phil Kessel, uh, the phrase I keep coming back to is thou dost protest too much. I mean, I think it it feels like a real oversell here because Kessel is still on the roster and they've got to do some damage control now based on some of the reports that got out there in the media. The extent to which might be somewhat exaggerated, but the elimination of truth overall that the Penguins tried to say there to me felt forced and kind of like an overplay of the hand. How about you? Yeah, uh, I got to stand in front of him for some of those comments. I I realized that um, he he spoke 
technically a couple different times on Friday. Uh, there was a couple reporters involved, maybe the first time, and then a group got together with him. And when you saw that happen, he did not seem necessarily happy to have to address the situation. It was the first question that was asked of him, and you could sort of see it on his face. He's like, my God, do I have to talk about this? Well, he did. He uh, did lay it on a little bit strong uh, in, in explaining where he stands. And honestly, I fully believe that he would be fine moving forward with Phil Kessel. And I just think that he's going to do what he wants to do with Phil, whether Phil likes it or not. And maybe, from what I was able to ascertain in Dallas, I think some of the the stories that have been floating might be coming more from the player than anybody else through some other people around this league, which is kind of interesting. So um, I, I think Mike Sullivan said what he had to say. But I'm with you. I, I mean, that was, what's he going to come out and, and tell the world, oh, yeah, this guy's a pain in my backside and uh, I'm having problems maybe sometimes getting along. And he was very interesting the way he said it. Our relationship is as good as it's ever been. And that doesn't mean that it's the best relationship. It just means that it's as good as it's ever going to be between those two guys. Well, you know what, Matt? I mean, they, they got to tone that down a little bit then because if he's going to act like it's ridiculous for us to even have this notion in our heads that there might be something that's worth addressing between the two, then what the heck was that summit about last year between the two of them up in Toronto, right? Which wasn't that interesting, huh? And if you listen to the, and I know you've heard some of the same stories I have about that little powwow, and uh, there it, it had to be forced a little bit, uh, if we can just put it that way, and it, it, it took a little bit of a nudge to get that meeting to happen. And, yes, they did get on the same page, so so we would think. And Phil had, by all rights, a very, very nice regular season. But it seemed like things started to get a little more tenuous as the year went on. And it's just not an easy trade to make, though. So, I mean, I think that they're going to find a way to make this work. They don't want to take 90-plus points out of their lineup. You'd love to see Phil change his ways a little bit, maybe see Mike Sullivan meet him in the, little, and in the middle a little bit more in terms of playing time and or who he plays with. I feel like it's just going to be a three-ring circus for us to follow from October on through the rest of the season with those two playing on the on the same team together, coaching and playing. But you know what I mean in the sense that like, there was a lot of narrative about, hey, look at Sully. He's got his finger on the pulse of the team. Uh, even he, no one could reach Phil Kessel until he did. Uh, and we all kept pointing, well, well, what did he need to, if there was no problem with the relationship, then what did he need to repair over the, over the summer to get him to 92 points, right? And Yeah, I mean, it's weird. And I kind of get frustrated with this whole, where did you guys come up with this? How, how could you even suspect that there's an issue between us? It just feels pushed down our throats, and like, an, like an overplay. Well, there's three teams worth of media, fans, and other players in the league that have seen this play out now in a couple different markets. So um, I, I don't think it's out of the question that it would eventually happen in Pittsburgh, specifically in a year that the team didn't have as much success as they did in the first two years that the player was on the team. So, yeah, everybody's going to look at this. There was definitely uh, smoke to the fire, but I think they'll find a way to make it work only because they're not going to probably be in a position to find a, a way to make their team better by moving Phil Kessel. So they'll find a way to coexist and then have to find a way to make it work in the playoffs too because it certainly seemed to hit a breaking point when the games were the, the most important and the players stopped producing the way we know him to be able to be capable of. So do they move a right wing, a left wing? What do they do? I still think if you're moving a player off of this roster, it has to be one of your right wingers. I saw some folks today suddenly putting out uh, pseudo lineups for next year, and they're putting Daniel Sprong on the left. I don't think that's going to happen. If he's playing in your lineup, he'll be a right winger as well. Look for Connor Sherry to potentially move. I still think Brian Rust, the fact that he was qualified, I'd hate to see him go because of his 
Swiss Army knife nature, but I think that's a player that's very attractive around the league. That's maybe someone that'll end up moving on simply because he's going to command too big a salary right now to maybe fit in as a depth player, and he's not going to play in your top six. So you'd have to find a way to move him on probably. So I think it's going to be one of those two guys, certainly, that is involved in a trade and maybe even Broussard's name, as we talked about a moment ago. Finally, Mets, let's discuss what the Capitals did by getting Carlson signed. It's going to be... 17 years in Washington if he sees the end of that contract at eight years and $64 million. On top of that, too, what do you think about how they maneuvered Orpic out and maybe even may be able to bring him back at a lesser number? That's a, a pretty shrewd play by them, and uh, it was quality to get Colorado to pick it up and then go ahead and go through the process of buying him out. And I, for some reason, I thought I remembered a rule that you couldn't trade a player, have him bought out, and then re-sign him with the same team. But I guess it's something that they're going to be allowed to do. And for sure, I could see Brooks Orpik wanting to return to Washington at a lesser rate. John Carlson's going to stay. And I know Devontae Smith-Pelly's probably not going to be back, but it sounds like they're going to have pretty much the same team in place. Now, as far as that deal that Carlson signed, it's what you sort of have to pay defensemen now. I don't really like the fact that they have seen their salaries escalate the way that they have, but he certainly earned it with the year he just put together, and I think he'll be able to produce like that for the foreseeable future, at least for another three or four years. I just don't know that it's going to be a great value moving into the far future where you get to year four, five, six, seven of that deal, but at that point, who cares? Maybe they find a taker for him in a trade, or they buy him out at some point if he stops producing the way that we know he can. The Addison kid says he wants to be like Tyson Berry. You see that being the case? Some people are trying to make him out to be Chris Letang. I think he's too small. Uh, I agree with you there. I, I, he, he compared himself to Tyson Berry, and I think if he ends up being Tyson Berry, the Penguins would be thrilled. Uh, I talked to some scouts, independent and otherwise, in Dallas who seem to think that's a steal for the Penguins at 53 because his offense is probably as good or better as some of the guys that went in the first round. It's just uh, a matter of him working on his defensive game and bulking up a little bit. He might get muscled off of pucks right now, but uh, they, they're thrilled with his puck-moving ability his ability to quarterback a power play and just play offensively. And right now, if you're the Pittsburgh Penguins, I think that that's something that they love, Tim. They love offensive defensemen, and they love guys who can push the play. Mets, thanks. I'll look for you at development camp sometime this week. Sounds like a plan, my friend. Thanks for having me. Brian Metzer from the Pittsburgh Penguins Radio Network, not only an expert when it comes to the Pens, but to the NHL draft and women's tennis as well. Tim Benz in for Adam Crowley.